You ready to get underway? See a couple folks straggling in. Why don't you all go ahead and get some seats, and then I'll, I'll just kind of riff here for a quick minute while you all are getting settled. Oh, good. The wristbands are going off. Yeah, that means it's time to get going. You having a good time so far? All right, right on. A few folks coming in. Come on in. I'm literally going to step off the stage in like 30 seconds. I'm standing here to offer you a little time to get to a seat. All right. All right, with that, I am incredibly grateful and excited that we have a number of the leading CEOs in our sector. They're going to be joining us on stage talking about the lessons that they have learned over the last couple of years. You certainly have yours. They have theirs. Uh, and one of the things I think that uh, we all share in common is that if you lead an organization, I used to work for a guy named John Podesta uh, at the Center for American Progress, and he told this amazing story, and if Danielle is in the room, she can verify this is true. John used to always say, before he started Center for American Progress, he was the chief of staff to the President of the United States, Bill Clinton at the time. And he used to always say he had this really interesting experience in that job. Not only was he hell up really busy, but he had this interesting perch in which to observe the presidency, the White House. And he used to say, it comes, this job comes with awesome responsibilities and sacred duties, but none, none is more important than being the communicator-in-chief, explaining what your government, in this case, is doing and why. And I think that translates, actually, to the work that we do, that every CEO, every leader of an organization has a responsibility to be the communicator-in-chief. So while we call this the CEO session, I think more accurately we should call it the communicator-in-chief session. And with that, hey, y'all, come on in. Why don't I invite Stacey Abrams? Stacey Abrams, she's been here before, but this is actually even better. It's Stacey Palmer. Stacey and everybody, why don't you come on up on stage? Thank you for being with us. Stacey Palmer. Exciting to see real people. Oh, I am thrilled to be here and I'm thrilled to see all of you. Welcome to what is going to be an amazing conversation. But before we start, I really want to say a deep thank you to all of you who do incredible work every day to keep us and so many other people in touch with what's going on in the social sector. We could not do our jobs without you. We could not inform people without you. And I bet people don't say thank you nearly enough for the amazing work you do. So I'm going to start with a round of applause for all that you all do. And I'm delighted today to welcome many people who are on the live stream at the Chronicle of Philanthropy's website. So we have a big audience here um, that gets to hear an amazing group of people talking about things candidly. Um, I think one of the reasons these folks were chosen is that they speak their mind um, really well. I don't think I can say that of every foundation executive I've ever met or interviewed, um, but these folks will tell you um, both what's on their minds and also we'll talk a little bit about what you can all do better. Um, so I'm thrilled to do this. I'd like them to introduce themselves. I'm gonna ask them two questions. One, what is the thing about your foundation that we don't know, but we should? And also, tell me a little bit about what you did before you came to the foundation, because none of you 
grew up in the president's office, um, and most of you didn't start really at a foundation, and I think that's what makes you distinctive in the leadership that you provide. So, Carmen, can I speak with you first? Sure. Hi, everybody. Hi. Happy afternoon. I love catching people after lunch, <laughs> uh, pumping you up. Um, my name is Carmen Rojas, and I'm the president and CEO of Marguerite Casey Foundation here in Seattle. We're re really focused on shifting, uh, investing in leaders, initiatives, and scholars who are shifting the balance of power in society to those folks who've long been excluded from having it. Um, what, um, question number one is, what did I do before? Oh, one thing about my foundation. You can um, do them in either order. Yeah. <laughs> the thing that I'm really excited about right now that we're doing at Marguerite Casey Foundation that Vu mentioned during the panel is our investment work. So it's, um, I think oftentimes we are stuck talking about the 5% of our resources when in reality the vast majority of philanthropic organizations have 95% of their resources invested in a market that's actively working against the communities we're, we purport to serve. And so on our, our, uh, when I stepped in, we did a lot of work on our, not only our investment policy statement, which is essentially the governing document of our investment work, but I actually just dug in and asked a bunch of critical questions. So started uh, offering some of our frontline racial justice organizing uh, groups that we do grant making to proxy votes for those companies that we're shareholders of. Started imagining what it would look like for us to use our endowment capital to build a pipeline of diverse managers, but to think about diversity as a step one and think about diversity and impact as step one and two, as two necessary things. Not wanting only to invest in people of color managers, but wanting to invest in folks who are from communities and coming up with solutions to make people's lives better. So that's the thing that is front of mind for me. Um, my first job was at Hot Dog on a Stick. I want to start there. I think service work is important. I think working people in this country make everything happen, so I'll start there. Um, I, um, my non-traditional background, I have a doctorate in city and regional planning. Uh, and I am an academic by training uh, where I studied social movements, mostly in Latin America. And I think that really positioned me to think about a number of questions that philanthropy is currently asking itself. One, what is the nature of social movements? Are nonprofit social movements? What is the relationship be between philanthropy donors and social movements? And what are the ways that we can actually um, move and support leaders on the front lines of communities to shift power uh, in our country and in countries across the world? Great. William? Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm William Bell, and I'm the president and CEO of Casey Family Programs. And I guess I would just start, I mean, in terms of Casey and what I'd like you to know is that um, over the last 56 years that Casey Family Programs has been invested in trying to increase levels of equity and equality for children and families um, across this country. And that's equity and equality in opportunity, um, because as much as people might want to suggest that it is so, not every child in every zip code in every community has the same level of opportunity to succeed. Let alone, they have capacity, but they don't have opportunity. Mm. Um, we focused on improving and increasing equity in globally competitive education. Um, I was in a conversation with someone last night who was 
describing the lack of workers in, in business today. And he kept making um, statements that were su suggesting that the people who were being left out of the workforce were being left out because of themselves. And so I raised the question about the large number of people who've been incarcerated who are looking for work, but as soon as they check the box that says, um, I was formerly incarcerated, the door is closed. And, and he still wanted that to be focused on the people needed to find a way to stop committing crimes. And if they could stop committing crimes, then maybe um, business owners would be willing to accept them. But I again raise the question, what about the person who's been incarcerated for the last 14 years in a federal prison who has been forced to work every single day of that 14-year period, getting paid 23 cents to a dollar an hour, with 50% of that being put aside to pay the government for what that person owes the government. They showed up for work every day. They worked well. They created the products that many organizations purchase from the federal government. And yet, when they show up, they can't use that work track record on their resume. When they show up for a job, they can't get a recommendation from that organization that they worked in for 14 years to say, this is a high quality worker. Mm -hmm. And so for us, the challenge is, how do we shift the balance in the way that people treat other people? Whoever you decide is an other person in this country. And we've also focused on the insufficiency of income. A lot of folks talk about poverty and the poor, but our challenge is not poverty and the poor, which sounds like a character trait. Our, our, our chance situation is that people don't have sufficient income to pay for their needs. Mm. And we also have focused on how do we improve the conditions in the neighborhoods where children and families live? Mm. Because there are infrastructure challenges that exist in certain communities that do not exist in others. They're, they're, Jackson, Mississippi right now is a statement of that in that water on one end of the line is purer than water on the other end of the line, mm -hmm. and who lives on the other end of the line. And so that's what I'd like for you to know about Casey Family Programs and about me. Um, a lot of different levels. Um, I was born and raised in the Mississippi Delta in the late 50s and early 60s on a plantation. Not sharecropping, but tenant relationship. You could live in the house as long as there was somebody in your family who could work the land, and you never really made any money. I moved to New York in um, my early 20s and worked in the not-for-profit sector for about 10 years, and then I worked in government for about 10 years, um, and then I came to Seattle to work with Casey Family Programs. Good to meet you all. Good afternoon. Carol. So good afternoon, everybody, and um, I'm Carol Stern. I'm the executive director of the Walton Family Foundation, and I was trying to think about the before question. Um, so I started my career similarly as a waitress and a baker in a restaurant, got me through college and graduate school, and got my degree in a very lucrative field of studio art. <laughs> and um, when the Metropolitan was not ready for me, mm. I then went back to graduate school and did my master's and my doctorate in college student personnel administration and spent 10 years in academia. But I am the child of a Holocaust survivor. I grew up in a home where if you weren't part of the solution, you were the problem, not part of the problem. And so my mother put a sign in your hand 
and had you out in the street raising your voice, marching on everything um, from as soon as you were strong enough to hold that sign. And so I was heavily involved in civil rights my entire life, and I left academia to work for the Anti-Defamation League and created what is called the A World of Difference Institute, which is today the largest and most far-reaching anti-bias curriculum in the world. It's got somewhere in the neighborhood of 450,000 teachers using it at the moment. And stayed there, left ADL, went to become the CEO of UNICEF. I did UNICEF US, was there for 12 years, and now I get the privilege to run the Walton Family Foundation. So I've had kind of several careers. Um, and the Walton Family Foundation, what attracted me to the foundation and what I think you don't know about us is that we are real believers, not only in, in providing access to opportunity, which is clearly you know, the, the definition of who we are, and access not just for communities but for individuals, but we are also real believers in being focused on our issues and not on the party line and not being afraid to use our voice and also not being stuck in one side or the other. You know, we're hard at work right now trying to redefine collaboration, which I hope we'll get a chance to talk about. But we had a week this, about sometime this past year, maybe a little over a year ago, in which we were called out publicly twice in one week, once for being too far to the right and once for being too far to the left. And I looked at that and thought, this is great. Because if both sides see us as the other side, we're doing something right. We really are being open to hearing voices we do not agree with because that's what's going to move us forward. And I think that's the most exciting thing happening at our foundation right now is that we are committed to looking, to listening, to learning, and then together to leading. So it's been quite a couple years since we were all here in person. You've all had to lead through this. You've probably thought a lot about how philanthropy does its work in a whole new way um, with new challenges. And if you could capture a couple of the key points that either has reinforced your view of what philanthropy should do or shifted it around, can you talk a little bit about that? And then we'll talk about how that affects your communication strategy. Um, who wants to start? William? So I, I would say that um, what's been reinforced for us during um, the last two and a half years is the belief that no group, no organization, no sector can actually fix the issues that are facing this country by themselves. And that, you know, when I think about collaboration, um, I've always described it as collaboration is an unnatural act between non-consenting adults. <laughs> because we don't collaborate well. We lead, but we don't necessarily find a way to share and to accept difference when it comes from somebody else's mouth and, and to hear when people question why we are moving in a certain way, why we're doing certain things, and try to look for an answer together. Because the end result is probably gonna be better than what we would have come up alone. And so what we've done is to really um, go deeper on the belief that there are five sectors in any community. That's the government sector, the business sector, the philanthropic sector, 
the nonprofit sector, which we include faith-based and civic organizations there, um, and then the sector of the people. And for us, the sector of the people, it's the people who live in a community, the people who get services in a community, the people who need services but don't get services um, in a community, and that all five of those voices need to be collaborating around the solutions that are best and are sustainable um, in our environment. And I think this watching people on Zoom and being able to talk to people that you wouldn't normally have traveled to talk to um, has reinforced this belief that that's how we need to think about how we come up with the best solutions. I would echo what you just said. I think what COVID showed us was that no one sector alone could solve the problem. And I think it presented a really interesting challenge to philanthropy because we're nimble. We can move quicker than government can work and we can get dollars out the door when there's an emergency in a way that others can't that can enable the other four sectors. Right. And I love the way you, you define the, the fifth sector. Um, to operate so that when a, you know, a factory agrees to make PPE instead of cars, to do that conversion takes dollars. And if they wait for government to provide those dollars, we're gonna be held up in the middle of a pandemic. But philanthropy could and did step in to enable that to happen. Government then was able to create that distribution system. Nonprofits then were actually a mechanism that was that distribution system. And the people kept the demand up that made it all happen. So it takes that intersection. And I, you know, I know I saw that time and again, especially at UNICEF, that when we were trying to solve big problems, it took the intersectionality to make it happen. I said earlier we're trying to redefine collaboration and I define it a little differently, but you know, in, in, in my 65 years of life, collaboration has always been about finding those with common ground and then coming to the table to work together. And I don't think that's gotten us very far because we're just talking to like-minded people and it has further driven that divide. And simultaneous to that divide being driven by that, we've been teaching leadership, which is great, but we forgot about teaching fellowship. And so we, uh, every one of us wants our kid in the classroom to be the one at the front of the room, and we give no value to those who really value being part of the team that makes it happen. And so we've got to bring fellowship back, and we've got to redefine collaboration so we're not talking about common ground. We're talking about common solutions. Let's come together with the people we don't agree with and look for the common solutions. Carmen? Um, a couple of things. I started June 2020, as you know. <laughs> and um, I, a couple of things. One, I think philanthropy was so ill-equipped to respond to a telling triple crisis, right? We had the crisis of COVID. We had the racial reckoning that happened that summer, and then a subsequent economic crisis, right? Like, the, and the rise, as we heard in the last panel, of fascism, right? Like, we saw it um, take hard root in our communities and across our country. And uh, I actually have been surprised at how ill-equipped we've been 
one to name the winners of all of these things, right? That like when a private sector company that could create PPE is waiting for subsidy to create PPE that would save people's lives, uh, that would use philanthropic dollars to do it as opposed to doing it because it saves people's lives, we have a problem. Like we have a problem in our economy, we have a problem in our democracy. I think with the racial reckoning, we saw every single philanthropic institution, donor, corporation, public sector leader, step out into the world and say that black lives matter. And we have seen two and a half years later that there's a gap, and that gap looks twofold. One, we haven't seen the movement of actual dollars to black leaders in black communities. And Jackson, Mississippi is a critical example of that. Two, is that when people took to the streets that summer, Stacey, it wasn't because there was a demand for black coders or black entrepreneurs or black teachers. It was because police were killing black people. And we saw a huge gap in the ways in which we as philanthropy were able to grapple with an institution that had targeted the black community, community forever communities of color forever, poor communities forever, and to actually name the police as an actual beneficiary of this racial subjugation. And so I, I was surprised at that. I love this followship. I think it's such a powerful uh, framing. And I'll say for me, stepping into this job at that moment, I'll be very transparent. I, I felt um, ill-equipped to manage leadership and followship that the durability of our, our ideas weren't matching the durability of our institutions. So people are very quick to go onto social media and do a call out. People are very quick to name a problem. People are very quick, um, the, the rapid nature in which people have a visceral feeling and then believe that the whole world needs to hear that feeling at somebody else's expense, for me is a huge demonstration of the ways in which we as a sector have not built sort of the durable muscle of disagreement. That like, the three of us are very different people, the four of us are fundamentally very different people. And I think that the thing that we need to start to practice as we move into what I believe is going to be a very hard national moment, as we heard from the last, the last two speakers, a very, very hard national moment, it's starting to build a durable muscle around disagreement so that we can find the places where we can work together, the places that we can fight with each other, the places where we can move along, and then there might be places where we may have to separate, where we are gonna disagree with each other fundamentally. And I think that as a sector, we are so nervous and polite about, uh, and don't wanna have those hard conversations. And frankly, those fora don't exist for us those like grappling for, the fighting for, and everything feels deeply uh, personal and disconnected from the future that we want. I, I think you raised so many great points, all of you did in that. How did you think about what your role then was as an external communicator? And I wanna come to internal next because that's really vital too. But did all of these changes and that feeling of, wait a minute, are we even up to this challenge? How did that change or influence what you thought about as you thought about communicating through the pandemic, the racial reckoning, all the things that were happening? Who wants to start? I, I think the first step back that I tried to do, and I, I don't know if I was, some of my team is here, they'll have to tell you if I was any good at it, but um, was to recognize I didn't have the answers. 
and to acknowledge that. You know, to have the humility to say, we're going to try some things. They may not work. You know, and clearly we did put our staff and our internal first before we went external. You know, it really was about, and I also had started just before the pandemic mm -hmm. and had not even personally met the entire staff because we're in several offices before we went out on, you know, we closed our offices for the pandemic. So it was a get to know them at the same time. It was really a, an interesting couple of years. But I think that was step one though, was to say, we, we're gonna try some things. And then step two was to recognize there's substantive knowledge. You know, you mentioned dollars haven't gotten where they needed to go. Mm. And I don't think you'll get any argument on this stage about that. Mm. But at the same time, dollars were committed without a plan. Mm-hmm. There were these Oof. big proclamations, Juicy. but yes. no plan, no strategy. And we don't work that way normally. That's not what any of us do. And there needs to be a strategy. There mm. needs to, to be some planning. And there is substantive knowledge. You know, when we sat back and said, are we going to create, for example, right after the murder of George Floyd, are we going to pivot and become a social justice foundation? And I looked at my team and, you know, again, I spent 18 years in civil rights work and I thought, you don't have that expertise. Right. This, we're not a staff of civil rights activists. We're not a, right, a staff of attorneys. We're not a staff of social justice. So if we're going to pivot, we're going to have to hire to do mm -hmm. that. And there are others who could do that that we could support. Mm -hmm. But we could use the work we do and we are experts at to move that needle. Mm -hmm. And so how do I take our K-12 program and put a social justice lens on it and use it to move the needle? How do I take an environment program and, and make sure that the tribe's voices are getting heard, not just the more powerful voice along a particular river? Um, you know, how do I take a home region and make sure all of the marginalized communities are at the table and have a microphone in front of them? Those are things we can do and we can do a better job. So we put kind of a DEIB lens, if you will, on the work we were already doing. And then we also took 15 of our staff from a clerical support professional to a senior exec, and we put them through the Cornell DEIB certificate program, which is an extensive course program. So we would at least begin to garner some of that substantive knowledge across the organization. Mm -hmm. You know, so we'd used our public platform more to advocate on, let's work in our lanes, Let's empower those who have the skills, and then let's learn about it together. I love this. I made a bunch of mistakes. Tell us about them. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we made mistakes, Because we all too. did. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody had a playbook for this. I, um, I'm so excited that we get to be on this panel with each other. What a treat. Um, uh, I like to call it unforced errors. In February of this past year, I sat... Uh, many of you know, Stacey Abrams was just called out, so Stacey joined our board, and we had seven pretty remarkable human beings, uh, mostly organizers, uh, political leaders, uh, join our board. And this last February, uh, Rashad Robinson, who runs Color of Change, uh, in executive session, said, Carmen, just spend the next hour and talk through your unforced errors from the moment you started. And it was the greatest gift to be able to just uh, say out loud a mistake because I think there is little room. I think the moment that you say that you've made a mistake, I'll speak for myself, like this job feels like a, 
a tremendous gift in this moment. Uh, it, uh, to be able to provide resources to brilliant people in communities fighting for a future that I deeply believe in feels um, uh, it's like so close to my heart and precious in that way. And being asked that question created a ton of room to be like that. So I came out real hot. I had just come from running an organization, uh, a worker justice organization, and had just like the friction of philanthropy was like right at my back. So I had spent, you know, seven years raising money and saw how many times my, my time, my magic, my brilliance, my thoughts were either wasted or taken away from me. I would be in two-year-long conversation processes with funders and never see one dollar. Um, and so when I got this job, I was like, I'm going to go with the last panel. Fuck it. Like, fuck this. This is some fucking bullshit. I, this is all made up. These are just made up things that philanthropy does. So I came out real hot. And I was like, we're just going to get as much money out there as possible because people were dying. And uh, I wish I would have taken a beat and a breath. Uh, and that was an unforced error. Uh, I think I, philanthropy has a bunch of norms that we treat as rules, but then we actually have rules. <laughs> we are governed by the IRS, right? And I wish I would have communicated more clearly to both people internally and externally, the distinction. Because when you come out and just give out a bunch of money, then people are like, I don't just give out all the money. I don't understand. Like, just write these checks. And that's just not the way it works. And especially if you want, I run a, a perpetual institution, an, an institution uh, whose mandate it is to exist in perpetuity. And so that's a different job. And I, and I think we have to, I wish I would have been honest about that. I think the third unforced error for me, um, was I am clear about my beliefs, uh, my ideological beliefs, and what I believe in the world, and who I am outside of this job. And I stepped in with that full person as a leader, and I think it was distorting for people who worked for me, and for our grant recipients, because people would hear me talk about the left, and people would hear me talk about the need to shift power. People would hear me talk about defund, and I fundamentally believe that as a, as a leader in this institution, as a part of our work. And um, I think that meant for a number of people that I wasn't going to be in conversations with people who were different than I was, that I wasn't going to support white leaders, that I wasn't going to engage in our investment work, that I really was going to go into our endowment and light it on fire. And, like, and I was like, no, actually, I have a job, which is different than it's a different job than the person that I am in movement in this moment. And I wish I would have been, I wish I would have taken the beat and the breath to be like more precise in that distinction. But it's interesting because I have to tell you, I think for both of us, taking the step from one side of the desk, the fund, the grantee to the grantor, that's been the m most difficult thing because when you're running the nonprofit, you know, UNICEF, you know, we're in the middle of, of a war zone and, we, and they blew up our water tank, so let's take the beer trucks into the next country and fill them with water and bring them back. Like, we've never done that before, but we could do that. There's, that's a very different emergency response yeah. okay. than the world that we live in now. That's right. And I think That's it's right. been, for me as well, I mean, I, we can sit and have hours on our mistakes because yeah. I've definitely made them, <laughs> you know, so. You know, and we, Casey, we came at this with 
So unlike my colleagues, I've been in this role now for about 16 years. And we came into the pandemic running full speed ahead on trying to change the life, change the world for children and families who are in uh, marginalized and overlooked communities, under-resourced communities. And we experienced the pandemic from the perspective that, one, the pandemic was a universal occurrence that impacted the world. But when you look at what happened here in the U.S., because of the lack of a plan before the pandemic, mm. because of the unwillingness to acknowledge the history of trauma that has been imposed on children and families in this country by the government, that the, the boarding schools with Native American children, the, the enslaved people and their descendants, and the fact that redlining re pushed black people into what was then called the ghettos, and that this country is yet to acknowledge what it has done and therefore it cannot plan for solutions because it is not willing to admit what it has to solve. Mm. And, and so what we tried to do was to, to recognize that there were certain communities, certain zip codes who were going to be um, disproportionately adversely affected by the pandemic. Mm. That their kids were going to suffer when you had to go to school from home because they didn't have access to internet, they didn't have computers, they didn't have uh, um, iPads. Um, they were going to to suffer because of the extra issues of mental health that were being perpetrated on them in the pandemic world. But it was already there before the pandemic mm -hmm. world showed up, mm -hmm. and and that we needed to figure out how do we in this crisis moment use some of our resources, and, and we're slightly different as well. We're an operating foundation, not a grant-making foundation. And so our answer to the IRS is we have this many people working for us. We spend this much money to help get certain things done. But in that moment, we also had to take advantage of the fact that we could do some grant-making mm. and look for the communities that were struggling the most and figure out how can we help with the internet? How can we help with the computers? Mm. How can we help with connecting people to uh, places where they could get food. Mm. Because these same children, these same neighborhoods were most impacted by food insecurity. Mm -hmm. their, their parents were the ones who couldn't work from home, who, who were then more exposed to the virus. And so when we look at a million people dying in this country, disproportionately in these neighborhoods, in these communities. And so for us, it was how do we address the byproduct emergency which is a byproduct of what we were doing before it was a pandemic. And then how do we use our voices and, 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 our, and, and our resources to try to push this conversation away from the polarized place that it has found itself? Mm. Because just listening to you, you can't voice your opinion without somebody canceling you mm. or somebody suggesting that because you pointed out that they were wrong, that, mm. oh, you're canceling me. Mm. The cancer culture is coming to get me. When what we're really trying to do is have a conversation about how poorly certain people in this country are living and what the conditions are that we are allowing their children to live in, but we would never let our children live in those mm. same conditions. Mm -hmm. and, and until we're willing to face that as a nation, not suggesting that it is those people's problem because they can't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They don't have boots. Mm. <laughs> 
And so we've been going down that dual pathway of saying, these issues were here before the pandemic. We're not going to use the pandemic as, as the reason for what's going on. No, we're going to talk about our track record mm. as a nation mm -hmm. and how we have moved it from Native Americans to enslaved black people to people who are trying to come across a southern border to say, I need a life better than the one mm. that I'm living here. Mm -hmm. and, and can you help me since your Statue of Liberty says, mm. send me, you're tired, you're hungry. I think the other side of what philanthropy did, which was exciting in this moment, was I think we all agree there was a spotlight. There was an opportunity in the middle of hell because we all agree these problems were there. The pandemic didn't create these problems. Mm -hmm. But there was an opportunity then of some federal funds that became available. Right. But as we all experienced, those who most needed those funds had no way to access those funds. So one of the things that we are actually piloting right now in Arkansas, we have created kind of one-stop shopping for federal funds for NGOs. So you're a small nonprofit and you don't have a grant writer, you don't know how to fill out a federal form, you don't understand the IRS reporting you're gonna have to do if you take these dollars, and you don't even know if you're eligible. And we now have created offices where you can walk in and say, here's who we are, what are we eligible for, mm. and then we will help you identify that, and then we will help you fill out the application for it, and, then, and we will make sure you understand what the obligations are if you take those funds. Mm -hmm. So that that small NGO that is probably being most effective in the community right now has the ability to survive through the problem. Sean mentioned the idea when we came on stage of a communicator in chief, and I'm curious how that even strikes you in your roles and whether you think of yourselves that way. And also, what do you do, all of the things we were just talking about, to empower your staff, your grantees, to talk about these things too? How do you use your influence to make sure that what we're talking about here doesn't stay in just this kind of a room, but really gets out to the world? For, I mean, I. Whether or we like it or not, uh, as leaders of these institutions, we are the mouthpiece of these institutions, right? And so I feel like for us and our staff, we've just spent a lot of time, especially as a leadership team that is uh, experientially diverse, role diverse, racially diverse, um, we've been actually grappling with what it means for us to get truly clear about this inside-outside value, understanding that we have values, we have a value, a set of values as an organization, a mission as an organization, and that this is employment that allows us to live a full life outside of this job, and how do we find the points of connection there? And um, it hasn't always been easy. I, I feel like the... Um, that like the jam up points are always around disagreement or like the places, yeah, I don't think that we have a durable practice of disagreement. I don't think that there are many spaces where we can, you can say, oh, I did this thing around our button. I'd be like, oh, I actually have a problem with that. Let me tell you what my problem is. There's no, that is always seen as um, so tense and so expensive, right? But I think as leaders in philanthropy, it's our job 
to model what it looks like to have principled disagreement with each other so our staff and so our grantees can do it. I think in terms of the platform, you know, um, the brand is strong at Marguerite Casey Foundation, so we have been doing everything from hosting monthly book clubs where we bring scholars and organizers who are writing what we think are some of the most important pieces um, of research, of scholarship, uh, and sharing it with our community here in the Puget Sound. We host these conversations in partnership with uh, our grant recipients. So the last uh, book club we did, we were really excited to host it with Maurice Mitchell from Working Families Party and Olufemi uh, Taiwo, who wrote Elite Capture. And it was an amazing conversation about the ways in which race is an amazing point of departure to think about equity, but it's insufficient. We have to think about all of the other things and the traps of race in and of itself as the point of departure being the only thing. And so trying to find ways that we can uh, create bubbles of oxygen in this moment for leaders to share ideas about the future and start to plant the seeds of the world that we want as possible. You know, we, we have I don't shy away from using my voice and from being outspoken, but one of the things that we've done intentionally is to think about our internal folks as I'm a leader of leaders. And so we've intentionally found avenues so that those who work for us all the way down the line have the opportunity to use their voices. We've also worked with the, the children and families that we serve, and we have created opportunities for them to speak in, in front of Congress. We've created opportunities for them to, to speak at national convenings, state convenings, local convenings, and expressing their perspective from what worked or didn't work for them and what they wished we had done differently in order to help their families at a time of need. And I remember one young man um, in front of members of Congress um, when they were talking about prevention versus foster care. And, and he said, my mother had a mental illness. She was afraid to go outside and ride in crowded places. And the help that they offered us in order to stay with her was to go to a program that required her to take two buses to take mm. us there and two buses to bring us back. And, and, when, and, and so it's not surprising that we ended up in foster care and we lost that time, we lost that relationship, and that we have to be able to receive what we need when we need it, not from the menu that you have to offer. Mm. And so what we've been working on is how do we make sure that people are hearing from the folks who need the help and that we can help groom them, help to give them the leadership opportunities so that their voices are sitting in an equal place on this platform as some of the others. Because I talk about those five sectors, but the reality is members of the people sector don't have the same access that we have don't have the opportunity to be heard as we do. And so what we're looking at from that communicator in chief effort is how do we make sure that the more voices are able to say what they believe, even if what they believe is different from what I might have said when mm -hmm. I stood up.
I think we approached it in, in two different ways, and I am a slightly different role than the two of you because I represent a living family, mm -hmm. and their name is on the foundation. Mm -hmm. So it is not Carol's voice, mm -hmm. it is the Walton voice. Mm -hmm. And I am cognizant of that always. Mm -hmm. And they are modest, That's, they are not chess beaters, look at what we're doing, that's not who they want to be. You don't see the name on very many things. But the work necessitates our having a voice. And so we have really spent a, a better part of the past year and a half redefining that narrative and thinking about our voice for the purposes of advocacy. How does the work speak? Um, and it's been a really interesting exercise. On the other side of the table is the question you posed, Stacy, of how do we make sure that all the voices are being heard? We do have powerful brands. We can move a chair to the table. And we need to, to bring the chair with us. Yeah. Mm. And it's not sufficient to just have a chair. There has to be a microphone there. And so oftentimes it means, yeah, maybe we are the chief spokesperson, but it means taking that microphone and saying, you know what, Carol doesn't need to speak today. Mm. Let me give my spot to one of my grantees who can tell the story of what it really means to be in this community, mm. what it really means to be that child yeah, or right. tell yeah. that story, and making sure we use the power of our brands to empower their brand. And then the last thing that, that I would say on, on voice is, I do think philanthropy sits at this very interesting space. You know, we rest on the shoulders of those who come before us. We are legacy entities. But we are, our purpose is the world we're gonna leave behind. And very often, we are pejorative in our approach to that. And so, recognizing that we're building this world for the next generation to inherit, we need to talk to them. Not make assumptions, you know. I, my years at UNICEF, I worked in 45 countries. I can't tell you how often we make assumptions about what, what a particular community needs and how wrong we are. And so we have been surveying and talking to Gen Z. If we're building Gen Z's future, Gen Z needs to be part of building it. And we have learned some really interesting facts. You know, walking in, I expected pessimism. We found optimism. We thought, we asked about the American dream. You know, I, I'm 65, so I grew up in the days of the American dream, and you know, this country's going to enable me to grow up and be anything I wanna be, even though I was a girl. Okay, that's a whole sidebar, but um, we believed that. And I did not know what Gen Z thought about an American dream. So it was clear that Gen Z has lost, um, we did national surveying, and it is clear that they have lost faith in institutions. So they don't believe the country is going to enable them to achieve the American dream, but they still believe the American dream is achievable. They just believe they are gonna grab it and make it themselves. And that's, that's an exciting opportunity to all of us in philanthropy then. If they're gonna grab it, you know, we've watched philanthropy going from putting the food in the mouth of a child to teaching the child to fish. We've all heard that, you know, saying, so he or she can catch their own food. Well, you know, it's time for some new fishing rods and it's time for new tools and that's a very different approach to the roles that we've played traditionally. And you raise a good point when you were just talking about the way people think about institutions. Philanthropy itself has been under attack 
quite a bit, um, and possibly I think there's fears among many that that's growing, that there's really concern about how philanthropy operates. Um, Congress is talking about whether it might want to change some of the rules on giving. How do you think about speaking for philanthropy writ large rather than your own institutions? And what would you like to see your peers doing to talk about philanthropy? Carmen, you talked a lot about the challenges that philanthropy faces mm. and wanting to address them. Um, what would you like to see more of in the conversation? Uh, naming the winners in this moment. Like fascism doesn't happen uh, by a ghost. There's like not a secret gas that's coming in the room. There are a set of individuals, institutions, political leaders um, who have a commitment to concentrating wealth and power in this country. And I wish that philanthropy would name that as a key problem. Um, naming, naming, not being able to make the distinction between white people and white supremacy uh, and have a more sophisticated conversation about race and racism in this country. And I think oftentimes we rest our laurels on the politics of deference and we're like, well, there's a, I'm a Latina in this job and so I should be doing a certain thing. And uh, I think that's insufficient. Uh, I think we have to have a more nuanced conversation about race and I think we have to name the fact that white people are a, part, are a part of us and we need them to win the future that we want. And I don't think we do a good job at that. I think a lot of leaders in philanthropy are afraid of that. I think that there's a lot of uh, anxiety and, and nervousness of naming uh, the ways in which a multiracial democracy is truly multiracial and trying to figure out what that looks like. I think third is this thing that we actually don't know. <laughs> I wish more people would be like, oh, we're just kind of trying some things. The gift of philanthropy is the opportunity to actually experiment, right? That we have resources that are flexible in nature that are, that are by comparison, right? The individual comparison that are uh, abundant in nature. And to Vu's earlier point, uh, that we have the ways in which, the means by which, to give people money to try things that may make people's lives better. And I think naming that as opposed to holding on to very strict and calculated and outcomes like the certainty versus curiosity approach has never served us as philanthropy, right? So when people are like, my $1 went to this one thing and then 40 houses were built and now 70 people are no longer poor, you, that, that just is a lie. And I think we have to stop telling ourselves that lie and start naming the truth, which is we're all trying things. And some of us are moving in the same direction. Some of us are moving in different directions. Some of us are only gonna go half a mile together. Some of us are gonna go 50 miles together. But actually being very clear and transparent in the discomfort of that feels super important to me. You know, part of um, what we have tried to do is to use data and, and facts about our history to connect the dots from our past to our present. And many folks don't know how long some people in government have been trying to um, dictate the direction of the money that we use to try and to experiment as philanthropy. Um, when President Reagan first came in his first 
year in office, one of the first things that he did was to sign an executive order and put together a committee to bring him recommendations for ways by which he could reduce the amount of government spending on social issues and encourage the use of philanthropic dollars to cover that gap. Mm-hmm. And others since that time period have tried to find ways to not use government dollars but use philanthropic dollars to pay for things that are the government's responsibility. It's all of our responsibility, Mm -hmm. but it is clearly part of the government's responsibility. And so for us, it is how do we not spend a lot of time and energy and resources defending ourselves as philanthropy um, when pretty much every one of the sectors are being heavily criticized every Mm -hmm. single day, depending on who's, who's throwing the criticism. But I do think that we need to be real about the role and function of the government sector, the role and function of the philanthropic sector, the role and function of the business sector, and how we can use the immense amount of resources that are available for the purposes that will benefit the most of the folks who are in need. Because one of the things that we have to be also aware of is that if you identify all of the money that philanthropy gives in any given year for all of the issues that we are giving money towards. I think the the record was about 80 something billion dollars in one year. Government spends nearly 700 billion dollars any given year Mm. on education alone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Part of it is, how do we get better results from the enormous amount of money that we are giving uh, and spending on, on issues or putting in loans that will be forgiven with certain people getting the majority of that who are not in these categories of, of need and bring this conversation together so that we're spending our resources, not defending criticism, but we're spending our resources trying to find out how to make this a better world for our children. I think two things. One, I think we need to reframe the questions we're asking. Mm. You know, we need to start looking for those common solutions. And then secondarily, I think as a sector, we talk in the big numbers. You know, how much do we spend in totality? We don't tell the good news stories. We have had some wins. We have done some things well. There are some things that... You know, somebody last night described it as, you know, yes, three steps forward, two steps back, but at least you're getting closer and closer. Mm-hmm. I think people, in order to have faith in us, sometimes need to be reminded of some of the positives that we have accomplished. Right. It's not all bad news. We haven't finished the job. I, you know, I'm not Pollyanna enough to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, and we haven't found the solutions, but isn't it an opportunity to bring us together? And that's I think philanthropy's greatest strength Mm. is to be those conveners and to keep the hope there. And and I think one of the things that we have to do on that is think about this notion of a grant cycle. Because these are life cycle issues that we're trying to resolve. And and I just don't believe that we can solve them on a grant cycle or an election cycle uh, mentality. And, And so one of the things that we've done 
in our something we call building communities of hope which is about trying to change what's happening in zip codes, uh, change what's happening in certain communities, change the way some of the government systems are actually working, particularly around um, foster care. There are too many kids in foster care. And for the last 16 years, we've been trying to cut that in half. We've been trying to get the government to reinvest the savings that comes from cutting foster care in half in building a child and family well-being system as opposed to continuing to talk about a child welfare system which carries a stigma that none of us want to have assigned. And for 16 years, we have been focused on how do we do that? How do we partner? How do we work with all 50 states? How do we work with the federal government to, to make that move? And as you said, the work is still not close to being done, but it, it, it is something that we have committed that we, we're not going to stop doing this until every child has the hope and the tools that they need to succeed in this world. And we will put every dime that we've got into doing this until perpetuity, until that gets done. And those are amazing messages that you all now need to share. I hope this panel has given you a lot of things to think about and messages to spread, especially about the impact philanthropy can have. We are so grateful for all of the things that you shared, including about the things that maybe didn't go well. I appreciate that. We don't hear that nearly enough in philanthropy. Thank you all for a marvelous conversation. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was awesome. Are we hugging? Are we shaking? Okay, here we go. Hey, bud, thank you. <laughs> Come in for one. Thank you. Georgia. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, quick check-in. Everybody feeling okay? Any burning questions out there? No, I don't know if the Mariners are going to win tonight. I'm hoping for Dr. Bell's sake that the Yankees do. All right, you're off to Learning Labs. We will see you here, 4 o'clock, not 8, 4, for Stephanie Land, the author of Made. Need anything in the meantime, look for those of us, well, I'm not wearing one, but the green shirts, and we're happy to help. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>